You're listening to Five Things with Lisa Birnbach. Hi, I'm Lisa Birnbach. This is Five Things That Make Life Better. And this is our last podcast of the year and of the decade. My gosh, it's the end of the teens. Somehow, I feel lucky to be alive. I don't feel lucky every day, by the way, not by a long shot, but I know inside, I know I'm lucky. I don't think we can choose luck. I think if we study ourselves, if we're a little bit intuitive or introspective, we will find that, yeah, we're mostly pretty fortunate. Trust me, though, there have been many times I've sobbed, why me, when the accumulation of hurts and woes and slights and health things get just overwhelming. Just a couple of days ago, I was thoroughly insulted by a really nasty postal worker for really no good reason, and I felt myself almost using that as an excuse to get low, but I stopped The day didn't have to be ruined. I couldn't let it. And we cannot let it. And the holidays, there's so much pressure to fill every moment with joy and ecstasy. And, you know, it's expectations that society and Hallmark and Christmas specials and cars with big red bows on them that we see in every commercial and we feel like we're not up to it. But take a little time, recalibrate Maybe even take a walk by yourself and be good to yourself. This has been a strange year, and this end of the year is hard for a lot of people, especially those without families. So I'm thinking of them. Here is my last list of things that made my life better in 2019. Number one, beef stew in the pressure cooker. I did it. I do not speak the language of Instapot, and I had moments of tremendous fear, but I allowed myself to give in to the pot, and it cooked for 35 minutes in high pressure, then somehow in less pressure for 10 minutes, and then it was done. And of course, I only had one pan or pot to clean, and the stew was good. Now, I have a lot to learn. I have to approach this big thing on my kitchen counter without fear, but I'm telling you this now so that I will hold myself to it. You're my witnesses. I'm going to try lamb stew next, and I will report back. Number two, a mousse-bouche. Now, this is a fancy French term for the free hors d'oeuvre that some restaurants offer before a meal. A mousse-bouche means something to amuse your mouth. I want to say here and now that I have never had an amuse-bouche I didn't like. I'm sure most of us have not had one that we didn't like because it's a moment for the chef to show off and make something tiny and perfect that will whet our appetites and make us order the most expensive thing on the menu. It works! Also, doesn't free food just always taste better? May we, it does. Number three, pockets in my clothes. How I love them. A dress or skirt with pockets is so dreamy. It's so, it's such a gift because you have a place for your Kleenex or your coat check or your lipstick or just a place for your hands that may not know where to go all the time. 
I know I'm not alone in this. I know that when women find that something they bought, particularly not jeans, but which always have pockets, but something else has pockets, it's like a a gift. Anyway, I love pockets. The funny thing is, if they make me look too bulky, I might have the cleaner sew them up or cut them out. Once our dear old dog Henry smelled a little pellet of a treat in a pocket of some cotton shorts I had, and he ate the whole pocket. That's how much people love pockets. How could I be mad at him? Number four, the careers of my exhibits, also known as my children. All of them are launched. My three, my partner's one, and the significant others as well. No one really handed them much in the way of help, if any. They are being hired and being promoted, and it's on their talents and their work ethic, which is solid, and I am proud of how motivated and smart they are. Number five, the impeachment. It's not a joyful, great thing for the year. It's a somber and responsible thing we must endure for the good of our democracy. The impeachment is a time for statesmanship, not partisanship. It's a time to end the damage that has been wrought by a corrupt man and his feckless toadies. It is time to prosecute him for his crimes and remind our fellow citizens that any shred of this behavior would have been considered unacceptable in every previous president in the history of our country. If he has nothing to hide, why has he refused to share his tax returns? Why has he refused to allow his senior staff to testify? It makes no sense. Even as a Democrat, I miss the concept of an honorable opponent. I long to see the Republican Party restored to its principles of small government and nice people. This administration has forced some very fine people on both sides into their separate bubbles with their own narrative logic. Trump wants to foment civil war at home and make deals with dictators abroad. Trump must be impeached. It is the only right thing to do. And with that, coming up, Stephen Levingston, editor at The Washington Post and author of a new biography of Joe Biden and Barack Obama. We'll be right back. Hi, it's Lisa Birnbach, and this is Five Things That Make Life Better. Today, my guest is Steve Levingston, uh, an editor for a very long time at The Washington Post. I think that's what we're going to say because because 18 years is a long time and uh, and a good long time. And the author of the new book, Barack and Joe, The Making of an Extraordinary Partnership. Welcome to the program, Steve. Oh, great to be here. Thanks. Uh, you have written a a really interesting account of the friendship between former President Barack Obama and Vice President Joe Biden, and you wrote it without speaking to President Barack Obama and Vice President Joe Biden. How was that? How did you how did you get it going? How did you keep it going? And how did you have faith that you would get the kind of gritty details of or not gritty molecular details of their friendship without them? Right. Well, it sounds pretty crazy, doesn't it? I mean, no journalist would do that normally. But the way I looked at it, actually, when, when I, I tried very hard to get both of them to talk to me, I tried repeatedly, repeatedly. 
And each time I got, um, you know, different answers for why they wouldn't. But I think what it comes down to is simply that I think they both realized that um, this campaign was going to be happening of Joe's Mm -hmm. and they really didn't want to get into it too much in any way that would come out later in a book that could then be used one way or another by either of them or by the media or whatever. So I think it was just the subject they wanted to steer clear of um, sort of a big way not to, you know, affect anything in a way that they might not want to wanted to at the time, as we see that, you know, Barack is sort of not really seeming all that friendly to Joe these days. Or, you know, Joe may, you know, I don't know, it just it, it was it was with some weird messages I got and they decided not to do it. So what I did instead, I thought, well, first I thought, well, maybe I shouldn't do this. And then I thought, well, I like writing history basically. And in some ways, what, I, what I'm looking at is history, very contemporary history. Mm-hmm. It's a history from, you know, the eight years that they were in office. It was a few years ago. And so I tried to do it almost like, I, like a historian. Like I wrote this book before, that this Kennedy and King, about John F. Kennedy and Martin Luther King. And I had to go and just sort of construct their relationship through whatever material was available. Mm-hmm. The, the, the main people aren't there anymore. So you have done actually and and your book is beautifully sourced and you and you have a bibliography and you have notes for each chapter and you have actually maybe written the first book that will be used by future historians examining them and their relationship. That's exactly it. And that's exactly how I feel about it. I mean, you know, they talk about journalism being the first rough draft of, of, of history. history. Yeah. But this is based on a lot of journalism as well as other things. I did a lot of interviews with people around Barack and Joe. Right. I did deep dives into all the material that's out there, memoirs and um, video and everything that was, you know, on the online and everything. So I sort of look at this like, like you said, it's really like the, not the first rough draft, but maybe the first draft right. of this relationship. Right. And of course, it's a different book that you wrote that was published in October of 2019 than a book you would write if this election were over by now. Exactly. However, now they had, what was the nature of the the Biden-Obama connection when they were both serving in the Senate? Um, well, they just sort of both arrived. I mean, Obama arrived there where, you know, where Biden had been for 30 odd years. Right. And um, they didn't really hit it off that well when they, when Obama first got there. You know, Obama was the new bright, shiny thing of the Democratic Party. <laughs> right. And he wanted to move fast. He thought he was, you know, he thought he was he was pretty hot. And um And Biden was an old man of the Senate, you know, and he he liked the hierarchy. He liked the traditions. And in some ways, you know, Obama seemed like a bit of a threat, I think, to to Biden and the way that he viewed the Senate. And he was, you know, such a hot celebrity at the time that, um, you know, Biden wanted him to slow down a little bit. I I guess uh, in the last few months, we've all watched up close or or at least on TV how how the way uh, uh, legislators are seated how that may connect with how they get along how we don't know what their office geography is but but you know the nature of a fellow senator from the same party does that mean that they are in each other's face a lot? Or can they, you know, can Obama with his 
quick ambition and Joe Biden with his more um, discursive style, do they do they have nothing to do with one another? No, or, I think they, yeah. No, I think they intersect certainly because they're you know both Democrats and whatnot. And I mean, they intersected. Um, you know, both of them were on the Foreign Relations Committee when Obama first arrived, and and you know, um, Biden was I think he was chairman or or a ranking ranking member of that. Did. So oh yeah, in the in the hierarchy, as you say, where they sit, you know, Obama or Biden was right in the center of the of the seating arrangement, and there was Obama. Way at the far end, the last seat off to the <laughs> right. edge, and so that sort of like sums up what you were saying that yeah. they, you know, the hierarchy does um, matter right. in a sense, and, and Obama had to put up with it as much as it sort of maybe rubbed against him. Um, no one can forget when uh, Biden was asked when when the the big group started uh, announcing that they were running for the Democratic nomination. It's hard to forget that Biden referred to Obama as well-spoken and clean or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that, you know, when, one of his early gaffes with Obama, I guess. Um, and, uh, you know, he kind of, Obama tried to be very gracious about it, um, although he was upset that, um, you know, Biden was implying that there hadn't been well-spoken um, African Americans who had run for president before, and there was Jesse Jackson and right. Shirley Chisholm. Right. Um, and but in the end, he sort of like felt that this was Biden's. Just again, I mean, even then, he was an old guy speaking in an old way, and he didn't really mean harm. It's and, it's that trope, you know. Right. It gets you into trouble. Right. This is the way his mama used to talk, you know, yeah. about people, and he just sort of was carrying on the tradition in a way. So. And the the move to name Joe Biden as his vice president was a shocker. But I would expect in your world at the Washington Post, it was even more shocking. Mm, well, I don't know. I mean, why why do you think people thought it was shocking? I, I I mean, I sort of thought that it was in many ways it made sense um, for Obama because Biden had things that Obama needed. And that's what you, how you pick your, right. your vice president. You know, he had strength in the Midwest. He had strength in, you know, those kind of swing states, which he still does. Mm-hmm. And he had a lot of foreign affairs experience, which Obama was basically had nothing on. Right. And he needed someone like that. And he needed somebody who could work with, with Congress. And Biden sure had a lot of friends on both sides of the aisle in Congress. So he sort of fit that mold of of the kind of candidate as vice president who would help him not only in the election to get elected, but once he was in, he probably would be a good guy to have next to you um, when you were trying to run the country. Well, that's true. I guess it was a yin and a yang. Uh, Was there ever a thought that um, Obama would ask Hillary Clinton to be his vice president? Well, well, yeah, he was thinking about that for a while, certainly. Uh I mean, he had others. But I think he came down early on to sort of canceling out Hillary as his vice president, because as I, as I remember reading or hearing people tell me that he felt that he wouldn't be getting he, it would be a threesome, basically, in the White House. Right. It would be Hillary, Bill and and Barack. And he didn't want to have to face that. Yeah. Yeah. So. I, I get it. <laughs> so what yeah. happens, of course, is that they become. Uh, the Lone Ranger and Tonto, Don Quixote and Sancho Panza. I mean, they really were emblematic of a great 
Well, as as you've said in the book, or or in your int- the introduction also says, a great buddy picture. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it was clear. I mean, what was interesting about it was that you know they had all these tensions leading into it, and even while they were in the White House together, but there was some there was a definite affection there, and there was a definite definite sort of um, respect. And as they got to know each other, they sort of relied on each other's strength to make them better people, which mm-hmm. is what exactly you do in a relationship. Mm-hmm. You know, you want to you want to take the best of whoever you're having your relationship with and make it a little bit of your own. And I think, you know, Obama did that for Biden in some respects, though it may not be obvious. He gave him a sense of discipline. Biden was not a terribly disciplined guy in speaking and, and other ways. And I think um, Biden really respected that in Obama and wanted that be wanted that to be part of his being. Mm-hmm. And Biden and and Obama, who we sort of know is kind of aloof and kind of not terribly an intimate guy, um, chummy back backslapper of, of a politician, he sort of saw the warmth and compassion that that Biden had, and he adopted some of that. So they kind of fed off of each other. And I like to say, in some ways, together they almost made a whole person. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. And and a pretty good looking one at that. That's true. They look great together. They and, did. And whatever. I mean, that was part of the part of the appeal, too. I mean, all those photos and them, you know, going out and having lunch together and ice cream and, you know, a little golfing on the on the greens at the White House. I mean, you couldn't fake that stuff. They really did enjoy being around each other, I think. Well, and, and you know, cool. what's what's interesting. Sorry to interrupt you. But what's interesting is in the George W. Bush era, we started to see men hugging. Yes. I I think I really started noticing the male hug or the bro hug or whatever whatever it's called these days in in force. George W. Bush um uh doing that and and I think he did it, and then it started to be a thing in the country. People mm. who saw, well, if the president can hug uh, hug a guy, I can hug a guy. And I do think that Americans look to the president and how he behaves and sort of model themselves. He's sort of the father of us all, even if he's younger than we are. And I wonder what you think is the general take takeaway from that Joe and and Barack Obama relationship. Yeah, no, they, they did, you know, they perfected that male um, hugging stuff, really. I mean, it started, as you said earlier, but they weren't shy about showing their affection. And I think that, as we know, as you said, um, presidents do and vice presidents do set a model of, of behavior. Right. And, you know, we see it in the White House today. We saw it in the White House then. Um, these guys sort of told not only, you know, men, they did set a, set a standard for male bonding so that it was okay for men to do that sort of thing. But they also just set a standard for general humanity and compassion um, that emanated from them to the rest of us. And, you know, I think people picked up on that and people wanted a part of that and people mm-hmm. saw it. There's one, one great, one of my favorite sort of little anecdotes in the book is when um, this one woman um, read an article about the, the bromance on a, on a website, and she posted a comment and it had photos and everything. And her comment was just so telling. It sort of tells, tells us what people, how people made this a part of their lives and wanted to be a part of it themselves. Uh-huh. She said, I want a man 
to look, look at, me at me the way <laughs> Biden looks at, at Obama. Obama. Yeah. You know, I mean, that was just that sort of summed it all up as far as I was concerned. And that's how that's how, you know, people in the White House, men or women in the White House will sort of affect the rest of the nation. Yes, yes. I think that's true. I think there was something genuine. We we got to know that their family spent time together, that um, Sasha, I think Obama, was very good friends with one of Biden's uh, granddaughters, that they were classmates, had sleepovers. Yep. And the, the wives liked it and respected one another. And it felt real. And, you know, for some reason, we needed to see that. Yeah, no, it's really We important. needed to see that. And I think also there is something very refreshing when you look back. And when I w- went through your book, I felt like, oh, right. Friendship. Friendship. <laughs> That's a nice thing. You yeah. know, it's nice to have lunch with a friend. There's, you know, there's sort of that old, old notion that men don't know how to maintain friendships and that it's their wives or female partners who make dinner plans and make dinner parties and sort of force the husbands of their friends to play nicely. But there seemed to be nothing forced about this particular twosome. Exactly. And, you know, there's that the great quote that um, that Obama used at the Medal of Freedom ceremony yeah. when he gave the Medal of Freedom to, to Biden right before the end of their term. Mm-hmm. And he talked about friendship and he, he, he referred to something that um, was from a W was from a Yates quote was from a Yates poem. Mm-hmm. And it goes, thinks think where man's glory most begins and ends and say my glory was I had such friends. And he was referring directly to, to Biden. Mm. I mean, and for a president to talk about his vice president, for a man to talk about another man like that, it just sort of like sets this incredible model that um, you would hope we might someday get back to. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I feel that way. I feel that way. Do you, um, do you, Steve, have male friends that you see apart from when you and your wife go out to dinner with other couples? Uh, yeah, yeah, some, some, but you know, certainly not. I don't think at the level and the and the and the, the intimacy and, and and the standard that these two guys did, and it's kind of it's kind of sad. And I thought a lot about that, and um, I think you know it gets close, and you know we have we have deep conversations and all, but I don't know. You always feel like you could do more, and you could go you could go deeper, and and be you know more real with anybody in any relationship. But it's um. You know, it's something we should all aspire to. Well, I also think that it's difficult to make a deep, profound, close friend when you're an adult and you have all your history that they don't know and all your baggage that they haven't seen. And it's even more remarkable for that. Right. And right. Barack and Joe, uh, and I, you know, the subtitle says it all, the making of an extraordinary partnership. Um. I wonder your thoughts on the stuttering. We have just learned Mm. that Joe Biden has overcome stuttering, and we're meant to understand that some of the gaffes and some of the verbal um, uh, boo-boos come from that panic that a stutterer feels when they know they're going to say a word that is challenging. 
Right, right. Um, well, actually, there's there's a good section in, in in my book that talks about his stuttering when he was a youth and how he fought really hard to mm-hmm. overcome it. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, he was a great athlete when he was young, and that was partly because he wanted to sh- to have people respect him for what he was and what he could do rather than his, you know, his tongue, which was having trouble at the time. Mm-hmm. And he worked really, really hard to overcome it. And, um, you know, there was, you're referring probably to that, um, was it in the Atlantic? Yes. Um, piece recently. Right. That was a beautiful piece. And I myself, you know, I'd been thinking about writing a piece just like that, but this, that guy was perfect to write that piece. Well, because he um, was himself a stutterer. Exactly. Because it was occurring to me, and it was really kind of upsetting me, that a lot of people were jumping on Biden for statements he said that seemed like he was being disrespectful or he was cutting someone down or he was or he was just not getting it or his mind was going when he came out with the wrong word. And to me, it was obvious that, you know, this is what happens um, when you are a stutterer. You never really lose it, I don't think. And he um and I've talked to others who, who, who have had this as well, and they say that what you do and what I think Joe does, and I think it was mentioned in that article, if you're getting to a point and you're sort of suddenly panicky about getting the right word and you can't get the word out, you go to a safe word. Right. And you just say that word. And it may not be the appropriate word. It might not be the right word. It might be a totally wrong word, but you can say it. Right. And it happens so quickly that people think that, well, what's going on with that guy's brain? Well, right. he's nothing really. Right. He's not slow. He's he, not. He's know, overcompensating, battle. actually. Right. Yeah. Right. And so it's kind of um, patently unfair to criticize someone for that kind of, um, I don't know what you call it, um, condition. Right. Um, because it's innate. It's, it's something within it's something him. Something within the brain that he right. can't control. And it's the same as criticizing anyone else for any other kind of condition is given to them by God. Yeah. I guess the problem is that it's invisible for so much of the time that when it happens, people are taken aback. Right. Yeah. But but then again, Joe Biden, who has evaded some some press and certainly he avoided you during the making of your book, he does make time for people who've undergone hardship like his, like oh, the yeah. loss of family, like the stuttering. I mean, he he has such empathy. Yeah. And yeah. I think that's one of the gifts he's given us to show show when you're wounded, cry if you're a man. It doesn't make you less of a man. I think that's something that's something that I will always be grateful to him for and his beautiful relationship with the Republicans. I mean, Mm -hmm. as we know, one of his best friends was John McCain, and uh, he didn't let party stand in the way of decent friendships. Now, of course, it's hard to believe it was so recently, but when when he was vice president, the houses of of Congress were not as locked into a disagreeable, hateful, um, silo the way they are now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and it's to his to his benefit and maybe to his disadvantage that he still believes in being able to cross the aisle. I know. Um, I mean, in some ways, it's a beautiful virtue for him to think that way mm-hmm. and for him to think, yes, if I become president, I can work with these people. I can do this. Again, 
he may be thinking about another time that we've just left behind us, but he also may be looking forward to a newer time where maybe that can happen again. You don't know. And it's it's kind of an interesting and, and affirmative way of thinking in a way. It's a nice way of thinking. It's affirmative. It's uplifting. It's optimistic. And it's also one of those things that I think gets him in trouble because people think he's out of it because he looks forward to um, a kinder America right. that we other, have lost. The other thing is, though, in some ways, what he's kind of promoting is absolutely essential. Because yeah. if we don't ever get back to being able to, to work together, then this is no longer a democracy. Right, right. It's it's really an incredible time. And it's incredible that you were able to write this book, Barack and Joe, while you were also editing the nonfiction book reviews at the Washington Post full time. Yeah. You make us look like slackers, you know. That's uh, a lot of work. Or I'm just manic. How about that? (laughs) Okay. Now I have a, a couple of book questions for you. This year we've seen so many books about What's going on in the White House about Trump by the Trump side and the non-Trump side? We've seen, of course, we've seen memoirs because we always see memoirs. What are Americans reading? What do they really want to read? And do Washingtonians want to read more politics than the rest of the country? I think they probably do. I think we get a, a skewed view from, you know, that so-called inside the beltway kind of thing. Right. Where they do want to read all of that. And I do think that there's been a glut and there's going to continue to be a glut of books about um, Trump and our world and and, you know, his dysfunction. And we're already seeing that in a way. And this is sort of what happens with with publishing. I think the publishing world jumps on a theme and they buy a million books on (laughs) on that theme. Right. And then there's there's really diminishing returns after a while. Right. And you see already, I mean, even that big book, you know, on, by Anonymous that, you know, came out, everyone was so excited about it, they thought it would be the greatest thing. It doesn't really, hasn't really told us anything terribly new. And it, because he couldn't tell us who he was, he didn't give us really a lot of context. So a lot of that stuff was already out there. Um, you know, it sells and it has been selling well, but it's only because people do have this appetite for that kind of stuff. But I do think there's going to be... Um, a time and there has been a time you know with some of the supreme court books and the kavanaugh mm-hmm, books right where you know people have moved on and you can't keep writing about that subject perhaps too much um well and... i feel like donald trump and his affiliates have taken up all of our brain mm-hmm. i mean i do feel for the first time in my life that i think about the president all the time <laughs> i should be thinking about my diet i should be thinking about my kids more. I should be thinking about a lot of things, Uh, but I'm thinking about Donald Trump. Yeah, just make sure you don't think about him before you go to sleep at night. Well, you know, (laughs) I know, that's the challenge. Um, What about, uh, uh, you know, great new uh, nonfiction by a, a new voice about something totally unrelated to today's politics? Can that book come through? Can someone pay attention to a book that isn't about this moment? Uh, boy, that's a really good question. And, you know, you you don't see it a lot, although, I mean, I guess in terms of there, there was a memoir, The Yellow House, that um, was very popular about a woman in, in um, Katrina, 
um, mm-hmm. and her family. And that got a lot of attention and it, and it sold very well. And it was something that removed from, you know, our day to day politics. So I think it probably talked a little bit about, you know, the world in general uh-huh. and the roughness of it. Um, but that became a big seller. It became, you know, targeted as the, you know, one of the best books of the year on all the lists and whatnot. Right. Um, you know, there's an example. Um, but I do think that in some ways, and actually we had an interesting piece in the Post, I think, this weekend about um, Jack Kerouac's book, On the Road. Right. When that first came out, um, you know, he only, that, that book only really succeeded. And the whole Beat Generation thing kind of took off by some kind of fluke of a review in the New York Times by a guy who liked the book immensely and was very learned and, and wrote, a, wrote a very thoughtful review of it when the main reviewer there was on vacation and hated the book and wasn't going to review it. Oh, funny. And after that, it's a great, it's a great little piece, I think. Right? Um, I'll look it's for worth it. Look, looking at. Um, but the reason that, and the, the piece sort of talks a little bit about, can that happen again today? Because mm-hmm. he made, he basically made um, Kerouac and On the Road and The Beat. Um, and the problem with it today is that, you know, as, as we all know, the, the media is just so fractured. And you get um, so many voices sounding off that no voice really has a tremendous sway in any way anymore. Even the you know, New York Times Book Review does not have the power that it used to have as no, much as it likes true. to think it does. Um, and <laughs> was that a good little dig? Yeah, that um, was good. <laughs> but, um, you know, it, but it, it truly doesn't. We've seen examples of that where, they, you know, that they've tried to promote certain novelists, certain books or whatever mm-hmm. in big ways on the cover of the Sunday Review. And mm-hmm. it just it didn't happen. Um, but in the earlier days, that happened all the time. And I don't think it's so much a function of the Times as it is the New York Times, as it is our time. Our and, moment. And, and the way yeah. the movement is. Yeah. The way the, 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 the moment is and, and, and the media is. So, you know, it's and there really hard. isn't there isn't a Michiko Kakatani anymore. Once she stepped down, I don't think there is a book reviewer who means everything. Yeah. Yeah. To a, a group of readers. But on the other hand, happily, it feels like book the book business is in a resurgence. Um, one of my exhibits likes to is reading her head off and she says it's because she has screen fatigue and mm. i think after a while getting back to pages and paper and ideas is very very i don't it's it's wonderful it's restorative oh yeah and it's definitely happening i think and an interesting aspect of that is you talk about screen i know you're talking about computer screens and stuff but this whole business of online books, people reading their Kindles and that sort of stuff mm-hmm. has sort of peaked. Yeah. And that's sort of on a, on a downward trend a little bit. And people are going back to paper. They want to feel the paper. They want to have the book. They don't want people to know that I'm reading this book at this moment. <laughs> you know, you want yeah. to be free and easy with what you have in your hand. And it's, it's something separate from the connected world. Um, and I think that's attractive to people nowadays. And, you know, the buying, I think, of, of paper books hardcovers and paperback is um, is doing better than it than it was. I, I, it feels that way to me. And bookstores are basically filled with customers. And the other thing, Steve, is that um, it's a great value for your entertainment buck. Oh, yeah. It's not uh, 90 minutes in a theater because movie tickets are now the same price as a paperback. Oh, I know. You know, no. so so I'm I'm a as you know, I'm a book person, and you are, and I really enjoyed reading Barack and Joe, The Making of an Extraordinary 
partnership. And now, Steve Levingston, it's time for your five things that make life better. Okay. Number one, you said archives. Yes. And that sort of goes back to what we were talking about earlier. Yes. Um, In the writing of this book and, and other books, archives are a beautiful, wonderful thing. And where they exist, you can just gather so much information and get a perspective on history and current day as well and be able to interpret history um, by having them. Um, You know, that means presidential libraries, research libraries, research centers, all that stuff. Um, And what's so great about a lot of them these days is that they're so, um, I was complaining about the digital world, but having these archives. They are accessible, yeah. Um, you can sit in your home and, you know, for my for my earlier book, this one I did on the Belle Epoque in Paris, mm-hmm. you know, I could tap into the to the Paris um, libraries and research centers sitting in, in, you know, Bethesda, Maryland and get material out that way. Right. So it's just it's just a wonderful thing. Did you did you actually have to go to other centers to do research on this book? On this one? Yes. Um no, you know, I don't know that I did. I did for the for the Kennedy and King book. I definitely went around and t- looked in the archives there. Uh huh. But um, this one again, it was it was so digitally available. All well, and it's so new that everything is yeah. everything you were looking for was recent. Right, and the people I talked to are. I mean, it's a very DC book. All the people right. were in DC, so I could just go and meet them for in their offices and talk to them. Right. So, right. Or, you know. Number two, indexes. That's related to, yes. as you, you know, try to research anything, um, you know, I'm probably giving away a terrible bad secret, but indexes in books are so valuable, it's beyond belief. If you're working on a subject and you need a certain, you're looking for a certain part of that subject or something specific, I just live a lot of time in indexes. Whenever I, the first thing I go to, whenever I get a book or I get a book out of the library, if I'm doing research, I spend all my time in the in the index. Because it you know helps you and makes things a lot quicker too. And a little note, a little note from a book reviewer: if a book has an index, it's so much easier to write the review. That's all I'm saying. But I write the pages in my in my uh, bound galleys when I write reviews for you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, But anyway, yes, indexes are lifesavers. Number three, I have to say this one was a shock: squirrels. You and the rest of my family, and my daughter in particular, and my son. Um, yeah, I love squirrels. I mean, I think they make life better. I, they just have to be. To my mind, squirrels are nature's comedians. You know, <laughs> if you sit and watch them, and I sit and watch them outside my window in, in our house in our backyard, maybe too much. Um, they are amazing creatures. They, you know, they can walk straight up and down the, the trunk of a tree. I mean, this is something I dream of doing, and they can only do that because they have this weird um, physical thing where they can turn their back foot all the way around, which they is kind can? of amazing. They have amazing abilities that we didn't realize. They have, they, their eyes have yellow-tinted lenses to cut down on sun glare. I mean, they're amazingly successful creatures for wow. many reasons. Wow. And when they're burying their nuts, I'm going on too much here, no. when they bury their nuts, you know, they yeah. bury them all in the yard. Yes, they're so smart that sometimes if they see another squirrel looking at them, they'll decoy and they'll pretend to bury the nut there, but they won't do it. And they'll move to another spot and bury it in another place. Is it Love possible it. that you have some of the finest squirrels in your yard? Because when <laughs> I see squirrels, I see, I've seen feral squirrels that scare me. 
I've mm-hmm. seen um, dirty looking squirrels. I I thought they were carriers of. Well, you're you're a city woman, right? Yes, I'm a city woman. <laughs> and they're city squirrels. It's a whole different world out they're here. They're tough. Maybe yours are kind of nice Mensa squirrels. Yeah. No, actually, they are pretty tough, though, sometimes. And you can see who are the alpha ones, and they're chasing each other around and running in circles up the tree trunk and stuff. It's just it's just great sort of release and, you know, getting away from day-to-day life watching, you know, that little corner of nature. That's nice. Okay, I get it now. <laughs> um, uh, Cheers, the TV show, number four so, for you. This, this is sort of related to these days we need things that take, so take us away from the real world that we're in. Mm-hmm. And um, my wife and I have gotten into this habit of every night before we go to sleep, we put on a, a an episode of Cheers, which is available on Netflix. So all whatever years it is, I don't know how many years we're we've already gone through the entire series once, and we're up to like the seventh the seventh season of again. And it's just it's such simple. Um, you know, some people would say that it's a little bit archaic, which it is, and you know, it may not be the best in terms of Me Too the way that they. You know, Sam Malone, the main guy there, talks about women and always wants just to get a woman and all that kind of stuff. But it's very it's very innocent, simple stuff. And the writing is just so humorous sometimes. And each one of those episodes is a little play in itself. And I love theater. So each one of those is like a, a self-contained theater sh- theater show you yeah. go to for, for a half hour every night. And you come away. Some some of them are better than others, and some of them are brilliant. It's you just... know, I, I appreciate what you're saying, and so many people I know have adopted um, a, a sitcom in reruns to um, be part of. I think it's called their sleep hygiene. Yes. You know, and I know a lot of people watch um, Parks and Recreation. Mm-hmm. The millennials seem to watch The Office over and over and over and over again. But I think it's it's all the same. It's comfort right. food. It's exactly. um, it's chicken soup for the soul. We also do Thirty Rock, which is quite good for this. Oh too. yes, yes, you know, that's yes. really fun sometimes. But it's a little more intense than Cheers. Cheers is a softer thing. <laughs> and and Cheers was so well written. Yeah, and it was character driven. It was, and Which it's just, is, you know, yeah. there's some real brilliant writing in there. If those guys that were writing for the stage, our our theater life would have been much more vibrant during those years. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's true. And number five, two pens in your pocket. Yeah, that's going to sound a little nerdy, but this is my pants pocket, not a shirt pocket like a nerd, but my pants pocket. I I usually have a pad of paper with me, a notebook with me all the time, just because I always feel I always get things I have to write down. And I'm always worried that I won't have a pen. So I always have to have a pen. But it's not good enough to have one pen because I worry that that pen might not have ink in it or might run out of ink. So I have to have two pens in my pocket. I totally get you. I'm always carrying the two pens in my pocket, and I've got them right now. I can feel them down there. And when when I feel them, I feel like I'm balanced in a way. If I'm walking around and I just sort of remind myself, okay, they're there, I feel like I I'm centered. I'm balanced. I know everything's okay. Well, so that it, makes life better. Yeah, it does make life better. I I get it. I don't go out of my house without paper. I just yeah. can't. And yeah. and that would include um I I carry around a mechanical pencil usually. Yeah. But um it's it's the tools of the trade, right? 
Exactly. And you just never know when something's going to occur to you and you just don't want to lose it because you know you'll lose it because 10 minutes later you'll be doing something else. Yeah. I'm all for the analog when it (laughs) comes to writing and creating. Steve, it was fantastic talking to you. Uh, Again, the book is called Barack and Joe, The Making of an Extraordinary Partnership. It's published by Hachette and it is um, a kind of reassuring buddy experience reading the book. Uh, So thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you. It was great. Always great talking with you. You've been listening to Five Things That Make Life Better with me, Lisa Birnbach. My guest this week has been journalist Stephen Levingston. He is the nonfiction book editor at The Washington Post and author of Barack and Joe, The Making of an Extraordinary Partnership. You can follow Steve on Twitter at Steve Levingston. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play Music, YouTube, and iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. My blog is at lisabernbach.com, where you'll find links and photos to all the things we discussed today. This podcast is produced in New York City by thefieldtv.com. My engineer is Jimmy Regan. My team is Spressa Rucci, Michael Port, Boko Haft, and Sam Haft. Until next week, stay warm and act natural. Bye-bye. That was Five Things with Lisa Bernbach. New episodes every Friday, if she remembers.